Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And today we're joined by TV Editor Liz Shannon Miller. Hi. Today we'll be talking about Fargo. Uh, we asked y'all to decide which film streaming on Netflix we should talk about. You voted for Fargo, and we decided this would be a good opportunity to talk about not only the Coen Brothers movie, but also the FX TV series based on that film. Uh, we've there have been past podcasts where we talked a lot about the Cohen brothers, so we decided we wanted to kind of move away from that just so we're not repeating ourselves. But to start things off, we did want to dig into Fargo, the film. And something I'm sort of struck by is, and I'm curious about you guys thought if it you feel it is the quintessential Cohen brothers film, even though you know it's not their I don't think it's their highest grossing film because I think that's true grit. And I think, there and obviously uh no country won won them more oscars but do you think fargo is sort of their essential film their their quintessentially cohen movie you know it's a really interesting question because i feel like it kind of comes down to how funny you think the quintessential cohen brothers film should be like i feel like so many of their films lean more towards comedy and fargo's Fargo, I mean, it's not the only dramatic film they've made by a long shot, but it definitely leans more into that that realm. Like, it, you know, it, it is it is definitely hilarious at points, but it is it, it, it's more on the drama side of the line. But I think it is, I think honestly for me, it is kind of the imperfect encapsulation of what they are as filmmakers, uh, to be sure. Like, it is like the first film of theirs that made me really just fall in love with them as filmmakers. And I think it, it's kind of like, it, you know, you never forget your first. Um, and that it wasn't my, I don't think it was the first Coen Brothers film I saw, but it was the first one I really loved. I think I would go so far as to say it is the quintessential Coen Brothers film, because, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have the slapsticky, super goofy Raising Arizona or Intolerable Cruelty, where they're just kind of tickling themselves and then on the other hand, you have uh, the really introspective, darkly dramatic, no country for old men. Um, but I think what makes them like some of our greatest American filmmakers who have ever lived is that they are so idiosyncratic and yet diverse. I mean, in 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 a manner of speaking, they're not diverse in every way. Uh, I think we can all agree. Um, but they're. Their kinds of uh, their their films range in tone and setting and plot and character um, uh, in a pretty pretty huge way I think, um, but I don't know I think Fargo really toes that line really well because as Liz said it's deeply funny but also deeply traumatizing I think I think I caught a little bit of it when like my mom rented it or something and I walked in when they were like putting the leg into the wood chipper and so. <laughs> Like, I thought that Fargo was this dark, like, serial killer drama, and then I eventually saw it, and I was like, oh, this is really funny, but also very disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it really does walk that line between sort of the, uh, of dark comedy and sort of the the goofy and the kind of severe, 
Um, but I also think that one of the reasons Fargo works so well is it has this sort of deep moral core that I think the Coen brothers are always kind of fascinated with, um, sort of the moral choices that people make and sort of the gray areas that they live in. Um, and I think that Fargo really draws that out in very clear contrasts, um, because, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, the villains of the film are you know, the kidnappers, but not, re- I mean, really the, 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 the biggest villain is William H. Macy. It's, it's Jerry because he is sort of so deluded. And so he's trying to work around his own emasculation and only deepening it. Meanwhile, uh, Marge, who is without question, the film's hero has a very clear moral center of who she is. She's incorruptible. I mean, people kind of wonder about the scene where she meets her, her old classmate and they're like, why is this dropped in? You know, why, you know, this character never comes back. What's the payoff here? And to me, it's, it's all thematic. It's all, it's all showing that, that Marge is incorruptible, you know, in sort of, she knows very much what she wants, uh, what she's about. And that, you know, makes her a good detective and it makes her a good person. And that sort of, that moral center, I think allows Fargo to sort of, reach those darker aspects because it's not, I think sometimes the Coen brothers get slapped with being nihilistic. And I, I've never really found that to be true in their films as bleak and as anticlimactic, purposefully anticlimactic as they can be. Just picturing Josh Brolin dead on the floor. <laughs> I know. Yeah. When you say, like, when wait, you say wait, anticlimactic. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, that. seriously, what's like, what, but, but even before that, I mean, like what's the climax of the big Lebowski? Oh, <laughs> it doesn't really have one. Buddy just comes back and then they drag the big Lebowski out of his chair and he's crying and they put him back. Like they're just purposefully anticlimactic. <laughs> you didn't answer the question though, Matt. Do you think Fargo is the quintessential Coen Brothers song? I think it is. I do. I think there are films of theirs that go sort of deeper and like there are others that sort of are more into comedy. But I do feel like if I were ever to be like, what is the one Coen Brothers movie you have to see? It, it would it remains Fargo. I think it is sort of the culmination, even though I would also say like, like I would say if like Fargo is like Cohen's 101, then something like Miller's Crossing is like advanced Cohen studies. <laughs> and then a serious man is like. <laughs> advanced is getting your doctorate in Cohen's. <laughs> and then the Lady Killers is for Matt Goldberg only. I don't even really like Lady Killers that much anymore. I did. I wrote a whole article saying <laughs> I was wrong about the Lady Killers. <laughs> you did. You did. That's true. You, you wrote. You wrote an article, you know, about the fact that you were wrong to defend a, one of the Coen Brothers' most critically reviled films. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that being said, I still need to revisit um, Intolerable Cruelty, which is a film, which that's sort of the question with the Coen Brothers is that they've made so many good films. It's really like their two bad ones are Lady Killers and Intolerable. And the question is, which one is worse? <laughs> yeah, I would be interested in revisiting Intoler- Intolerable Cruelty just because like, I feel like it was such a, it was like, it was a movie where they, it was a, such a movie star film. Um, and also you have to throw into the mix, like all of the, you know, not quite Coen brothers movies that the, the ones where it's like taken from their scripts, like, and I'm blanking on the name of it now. Uh, the one did, I think maybe George Clooney directed it. Uh, the Suburbicon. Suburbicon. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, they, I mean, they've been around, they've been busy, but yeah, they, when, when they are top notch, they're incredible. Yeah. 
No, it's very hard for like I'm trying to th- I can't think of really any movies that were like made from Cohen scripts that are like really good unless it's like even like it's like spies. A... Oh, that was that a Cohen script? Well, okay. yeah, it was like a I think someone originated it and then they asked Spielberg if they could take a crack at it. So it's like Cohen Brothers revised an existing oh, okay. script. Okay. I see. So that's why it has that scene at the beginning with Tom Hanks and that other guy where they're like arguing about Something I can't remember, but I was like, oh, this is a Coen Brothers scene. Yeah. Wait, wait, which film was this? Bridge of Spies. Oh, okay. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Like, when, I, when I think of a Coen script, I think of like, hey, remember they wrote a remake of Gambit? Yeah. <laughs> and like, no one liked it. <laughs> they wrote Unbroken. Yeah. Wow. Which is also bad. Unbroken. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, also wrote the upcoming Scarface remake. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but it, I'm very curious to see how, you know, Cohen, like to see Joel, just Joel Cohen on his own doing Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be fascinating. Is that the Denzel one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I am but, curious why why you guys think that Fargo endures because it is a film from you know the mid '90s about uh, you know cops and and killers, but it's just so strange and idiosyncratic, and yet is still you know as evidenced by the TV show really relevant and something that people continue to go back to. I think Fargo endures because it's it the Coens really know how to lean into absurdity in a way that's sort of like life is chaotic and unpredictable and there is sort of like there is a moral certitude and it may not save you but it's good to have it, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think that sort of, especially as we live in increasingly absurd times, Fargo's staying power of just, you know, get to, to quote another Coen Brothers movie, movie uh, get back to me when it all makes sense, <laughs> um, is sort of, that, that's sort of one of its enduring powers. I mean, I think, I think that definitely like capturing the absurdity of life is a big thing. But I also think that, one ask the, the like the thing that honestly I, I I feel like is the most haunting element of the film is a decent guy makes a bad decision, and that's the that's the movie is like you know uh, Jerry is not a terrible human being he just makes a terrible decision, and it destroys not just his life but it destroys a lot of other lives. There's the collateral damage that kind of comes out of it like is really incredible and that's the way life works and i think that you know when you watch fargo this is not these are not super sleuths these are not super it's not it's not a it's not a it's not it's not super sleuth versus super thief it's just one guy made a really dumb decision i was literally just uh re-watching it and by the way we should talk about the fact that uh it takes a goddamn 30 minutes for uh Francis McDormand to show up. Um, but uh, I was rewatching it and, you know, literally Jerry is trying to pull off a scheme where he's just faxing blurred numbers to uh, like the corporate office to try <laughs> to like, pull off this car scheme he's trying to pull off. And, you know, it's, it's like the most mundane sort of uh, criminality. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it, I think there's just something so relatable and haunting about it. Yeah, I also think that Jerry's motivations are kind of hauntingly accurate. Like the fact it's not, it's not that he wants to be, you know, it's not like oh, we've you know if this this scam goes through, we'll be set for life. 
all it is is that he's tired of feeling emasculated by his father-in-law and that he just really wants to sort of prove he can be his own man and it fails. And then it's him just trying to dig him, dig his way out of the hole because he feels so disrespected. And rather than just standing up to his father-in-law, he sort of mealy mouthed and sort of tries to keep weaseling his way out of his circumstances and then creating these sort of ripple effects. And William H. Macy is so good in that role. Yes. Too. Uh, and if I recall correctly, I think it was on the Deacons podcast when Joel Cohen was on there recently. He was talking about how William H. Macy came in and read it unlike anyone else had read it. And they like were like, oh, that's interesting. Like they hadn't thought about the role that way. Um, and then that's how they cast him. Uh, I highly recommend like, listening to that podcast if anyone's interested, because the Coens do not talk about their work very much at all. And it's just Joel Cohen, Joel Cohen for an hour. Uh, just like reminiscing with Roger Deakins about their past projects and stuff. That is something I also do like about the Coens that they, is that they don't talk about their work. I think that they sort of, they're, they're willing to make it strange or um, kind of a, a little obtuse and they just kind of leave it there. And then they, they leave it to the, to the viewer to sort of untangle it rather than being like, no, this is what I was going for. Uh, do they say what in, in, in the podcast who they were like? What kind of actor they were looking at for for that role for the Jerry role? I can't remember. I can't remember because they release two episodes a week, and I've just been mainlining that. So it's been it's been a little bit. Uh, but I can't remember exactly who. But I think they they were just a little taken aback by William H Macy's take on it, and and kind of the maybe it was like the doubling of lines because it wasn't in the script or it could be entirely off base right now. repeating certain phrases. Yeah, and everyone in the comments now is telling me that I'm wrong and they can have post the link and show me exactly what this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> but I don't know. I just think you know, I think part of the brilliance as well is setting it against the backdrop of this Minnesota nice because again, Liz to your point like this is the real world. People don't go around uh, you know, well I don't know. Maybe they do. Uh, just calling people out in front of their faces. You try and kind of like sidestep around, give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and the way that Marge Gunderson kind of goes about this investigation, she's very nice, even to her partner, who's just an idiot. Um, just in the nicest way they have possible. To disagree with your police work there, Lou. <laughs> yeah, just in the nicest way possible, tells him he's wrong. Uh, but again, I think that plays into those those tropes of emasculation. She's a she's a woman in a traditionally male role and knows that. Uh, you know, um, some people may be looking down upon her, and and this is something that unfortunately women have to do in roles of power is is to kind of appease the masculinity of the men who are under them, um, so as not to piss them off, which is ridiculous. Although, I in a nice, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> What'd you say? I just, I was just joking. I know nothing about. That. <laughs> but in a nice little, a nice little touch is that like sort of one of the film's lone good guys is John Carroll Lynch as yeah. Marge's husband, and he's just he's just making bird stamps. <laughs> <laughs> he's just making little bird stamps, and I think that's really sweet. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. Uh, that it, it's a rare a rare uh, just full on good guy t- uh, turn from John Carroll Lynch, who gets typecast as not that a lot of the time, which is nice. The Zodiac killer. Oh, poor John Kellowich. <laughs> if, you if you've ever watched, if you if you're, I if you watch, uh, if you put in Google or YouTube, uh, John Carroll Lynch, Seth Meyers, you'll come across one of my all-time favorite sketches, which is uh, Seth Meyers. It, 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 John Carroll Lynch had made a "Who's That Guy?" appearance, <laughs> uh, 
it was it's great. It's I, I don't want to spoil it. Um, uh, but I did actually I wanted to share. So I have like I'm going to show this. Uh, I have the, the Fargo script, which I purchased years and years ago. Um, and the opening the opening uh, like the, the way they write the screenplay uh, for the, the the way they script the opening is beautiful. It's like, you know, they have the following text fades in over black. This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. Uh, request, at the request of survivors, the name could change. Out of respect for the dead, the rest been told exactly as it occurred. Flare to white. Fade in from white. Slowly the white becomes a barely perceptible image. White particles wave over a white background. A snowfall. A car bursts through the curtain of snow. The car is equipped with a hitch and is towing another car, a brand new light brown Cutlass Sierra with a pink sales sticker showing in its rear window. As the car ro- cars roar past, leaving snow swirling their drift, the title of the film fades in. Like, that's a, that's a great way to write a car drives through a snowstorm. <laughs> Even as you're reading that, I can hear, like, Carter Burwell's score, like, come mm-hmm. in. Yeah. The Cohen brothers are very good at writing, I guess we should say. Yeah. Well, and they also they're very particular and they know what they want. Yeah. yeah. Those kind of like, you know, and I think part of the, the success of their films is that they work at such a relatively low budget that they're able to sort of craft their films exactly to their specifications. They're not really wrangling with studios over you have to include this, you need this kind of coverage, you need the you know, they just they know what they want and they sort of have earned the freedom to do it. What is the highest budget Coen Brothers film ever made? Was it Hudsucker? Hudsucker feels better, but I know they... Hudsucker was very expensive and and did not do well. Let me, let me let me do some research here. I'll, I will say while you do that that uh, Hudsucker is my unobjective favorite Coen Brothers film. Uh, <laughs> All hail the Hud! It just gets to me. It's like you know, it's for kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you know, Jennifer Jason Lee is like God tier in her yes. like, yes. um, oh God, you got John Mahoney and Bruce Campbell, like being like an actual character versus, you know, just popping up in a random cameo the way he usually does. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I didn't mean to derail the conversation. No, no, it's fine. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shut down Hudsucker proxy praise. Uh, yeah. As far as, yeah, but I don't know what their highest gross or their, their most expensive film would be. I'm getting close to the answer, and I think it's gonna be uh, surprising. If you say Bart Barton Fink, I'm gonna be very upset. <laughs> hey, Barton. <laughs> I just actually rewatched that, that episode of The Simpsons where <laughs> they're all excited. Anyone already movie? Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, Matt, do you have a do you have like an objective favorite Coen Brothers film versus a non-objective? I mean, to me, it's I mean, it's all subjective. Obviously, you know, I I and the thing is, is I kind of like them for different reasons, you know. And it so like for me, I mean, I have so much fun with like Big Lebowski and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But I also feel like the man who wasn't there doesn't get enough love. Um, I think Miller's Crossing might be their masterpiece, but. You know, it's been so long since I revisited uh, No Country, so it's it's really hard for me to say. Uh, yeah, it feels like one of those movies where I've never gone back to revisit it, but I feel like I should, just because I I remember the. But it was one of those experiences where I saw it in the theater, and it was just such a perfect viewing experience. It was just like 
I didn't feel the need to ever go back because I was like, I know this is a great film. I don't need to re I don't need to reaffirm that. Right, right. Which is always weird. Like it's you know you theoretically a movie if a movie if you if you love a movie you should want to watch it more than once. But sometimes sometimes you just want to hold on to that perfect experience. I hear you. Are you ready for the answer? We yeah. have guesses. Do we have a guess from each one of you? As to uh, my, if I were to guess, I would guess True Grit. Okay, I I, I was going to say True True Grit, but uh, I'm going to go No Country for All Men just to be contrary. It is intolerable cruelty. Oh, $60 million dollars. Sixty million. The majority of their films are between like twenty five and like thirty five million. Even True Grit. Uh, True Grit was thirty eight million, which what? like all of that money's on the screen right there. Yeah. I mean, Inside Lewin Davis was eleven million. Burn yeah, After that... Reading was thirty seven million. No yeah. Country was twenty five million. They just, I mean, like you said, like they know exactly what they want and they know exactly what they're going to get. So they're not shooting a ton of coverage. They're not wasting their days. But, you know, I think it's smart to keep those budgets like that's 25 million for a Coen Brothers Western is is a gamble. <laughs> like that's yeah. a steal. Well, like, and that's a steal. And because everyone wants to work with them, they'll work at scale. That's how something like Hail Caesar is like a star studded event. Yeah, but it's not expensive. She, Intolerable I, cruelty. Actually, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I should have guessed Hail Caesar. That was that would have been a better guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hail Caesar. Well, that was at CBS Films. Um, so, or no, that was Universal Pictures. Let's see. Uh, Hail Caesar was twenty-two million, so that was relatively cheap. I think again, like everyone's just happy to work with them. I imagine Intolerable Cruelty was so expensive because that had been in development before they signed on, so there were probably development costs already included mm-hmm. in the budget. Um, because Ron Howard was going to direct at one point, Jonathan Demi was going to direct at one point. But yeah, sixty million. I don't understand how that movie is that expensive. <laughs> I think it's movie star salaries. I'm guessing. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. guessing George went. George went after his quote. So did mm-hmm. you know? Catherine Zeta Jones at that point was probably able to ask for like eight to ten million. I have no. I have nothing in front of me to confirm that. Uh, but, you know, that's my guess. Well, that's how I was looking at uh, How Do You Know, the James L. Brooks film the other day, and that budget is like a hundred, over a hundred million dollars. That, that was notorious, but it's like Jack Nicholson asked for 20. Yeah, um, yeah. And they gave it. God, I but hate yeah. that movie. <laughs> <laughs> how Do You Know is the worst. <laughs> um, all right, well, you know, let's, uh, let's move a little bit into Fargo the TV series, because it's such an odd duck it, first off i mean i think the fact that it's been as successful as it is i mean regardless of sort of how you how you feel about the individual seasons i think it is, fx would qualify it as a success um and it's been able to land a lot of big talent um for its lead for its casts um but you know in its first season it was kind of like a gamble it's like you're going to adapt the coen brothers like arguably greatest movie into a tv show without their involvement really like the bet they gave it their blessing and then they kind of just left it alone. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it was definitely like a wild choice. I'm, I'm looking up, I want to, I'm checking the date on something really quick. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I basically, I've, I've had the, I've had the opportunity to cover the show, uh, you know, in various, um, in various ways. Like I actually been, to, I went to the sets set for seasons two and three I'm going to say seasons instead of years or whatever, because, you know, we're all grownups here. We know what we're talking about. Um, and 
but like in two, in, so in the lead up to uh, the second season, I asked uh, Warren Littlefield, who's the producer on the show. He's basically he's the one who brought Noah Hawley to the material. Um, and if you're not familiar with Warren Littlefield, like he's basically been responsible for he he basically like ran NBC for several years, um, uh, and then uh, he got he left and became an independent producer, and he produces The Handmaid's Tale as well. Um, he's so it's a wild legacy he has. Um, and so it's I also asked, the the executive who uh, was fuming when the Friends cast decided to bargain together for their negotiations on Friends. Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 lived he's been through the wars. Yeah, yeah. And he's had the notable distinction of I I believe he's been played not once but twice by Bob Balaban in various stuff <laughs> about the television industry, which I I honestly I consider that a badge of honor. Um, but I asked him I asked him the question of uh, you know what does Fargo mean like when you're making a TV show called Fargo how do you define it? And I loved his answer which I pulled up here. I think it's a world where people get up every day, get out of bed, they put on layers and layers of armor in order to face the day. There's something wonder that's wonderfully heroic in just getting through the day, navigating their environment, and living to face another one. So what the Coens brilliantly do is they introduce all of these layers of additional tests into their world, never forgetting that frying an egg, tying your shoes, taking a leak might just be as difficult as staying alive. Like, and I think that's... I think that's when Fargo is at its best, when it's like really grounded in mundanity feels like a harsh word, but mundanity of real life. And then you have all this big sweeping drama on top of that. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's sort of, I, I mean, I've full disclosure. I've only seen the first two seasons of Fargo and they're, they're kind of wide apart. Like I thought the first season was okay, but it didn't really stick with me. I think that's partially because it feels very much like, it feels a lot like the movie. It doesn't feel like as much of a departure as it needs to be. Right. Whereas season two really kind of strikes out on its own. And is like, we're going to make a move. Like this is, this is kind of about the nature of war, like, and sort of to go on that kind of big canvas. And, and, and there are some swings like with the aliens that don't really, <laughs> I don't know if those pay off, but at least it's sort of, it has a central thesis to it that I feel like coheres. And I feel like that sort of, you know, what is the central idea Noah Hawley is going for and, and how well is Fargo a vehicle for it? Yeah, I think uh, I think the, the, you know, the shifting of period and time periods is important. Like, because I, I, you know, the thing that I had forgotten until recently uh, is that even the first Fargo film is technically a period piece. Like, mm -hmm. it was 1987. And you look back on it from the year 2020, of course, like the difference between 1996 95, 96? Actually, 96. Thank you. Um, okay, my first instance. But 96, the difference between 96 and 87 is, you know, uh, Jerry's wife's hair is definitely crimped to all, crimped beyond compare and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I feel like going, the, the, second, the second season going back to the 70s uh, helped a lot as well in defining what this, what the, fact, the, the range of, the range of storytelling that was possible within this universe, uh, for sure. Yeah, I actively disliked the first season. <laughs> and I was in the minority because everyone was raving about it. But I mean, Fargo is one of my favorite films of all time. And it just felt it just felt kind of pointless to me. Like, why are you doing this again? Like, it was the same story. But I really loved the second season. I really loved Gene Smart. Um, I liked, you know, exploring themes related to that period. Um, 
And then it was kind of lukewarm on season three with the dual Ewan McGregor's and Mary Elizabeth Winstead and stuff. I can kind of take your leave that season. Yeah, it's interesting. I randomly threw out on Twitter. Uh, I put I did a Twitter poll asking what people thought their favorite 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 season cast was. Um, and every like season two swept in a way I had not expected, given that got Carrie Coon and Ewan McGregor in season three, and that's just yeah. you know remarkable. Um, also, by the way, I apologize if you can hear my neighbors apparently blasting the Hamilton soundtrack. <laughs> Listen, they're not throwing away their shot, so not. it's fine. No, they are, in fact, not throwing away. That is literally the, <laughs> That's the song that's like. <laughs> um, Amazing. But, yes, uh, I mean, that's the thing with, uh, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the, the show has, I, I, I will defend season one, if only for the fact that I think Key and Peele come in and are delightful. Um, they're just like a wonderful, like, it's like they're like a little lovely, like dash of uh, dash of paprika on the on the entire season. And then also, I will never stop thinking about is I mean, is it does, does anyone care if I do spoilers or spoil, a spoilery comment? Uh, for the first few seasons, no, I don't think. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're in season four yeah, now, so season. basically just like, uh, you know, it's late in the season and then Martin Freeman is sitting in the car with his new wife and he knows that if he goes inside his office that uh, he's probably going to get murdered and he tells his wife to pull up her hood and go in for him. Mm-hmm. And it's that pull up, pull up, oh, pull up your hood so you don't get cold moment where it's just like, oh my God. And I think, I think, it, I think it, you know, is it arguably a problem that the show basically Basically, like Martin Freeman's character is the Jerry character in this in the situation. The fact that it's such a direct analog feels like almost a little too obvious. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, guys, the seventy tips. I'm so sorry um, that they're really playing it loud. Um, anyways, my point is just that. Uh, uh, Jerry, uh, you know, the, having that such a clear Jerry analog for the first season does help, doesn't help it feel like a separate entity narrative-wise from the film. And I think that's a big part of why season two works a lot, it, it, it stands out because not only is, because you, you also don't have a very clear Marge Gunderson uh, analog in Alison Tolman. But in season two, you've got Patrick Wilson as the noble police officer doing his best. And then you've got a whole different cast of, uh, you know, misbegotten souls. And I think by sort of making that departure, you find more interesting, less predictable characters. Like, I really never knew what to make of Bokeem Woodbine's character in season two, but I was constantly fascinated by whatever he was up to. Yeah. Um, And I think I I, I love the casting of Jeffrey Donovan uh, as as God. Like, that's that's an amazing performance from an actor who... Uh, you know, my, has had been just doing like a lot of basic cable procedurals, and yeah. you know, Noah Hawley was like, "I think this guy can do more," and he was right. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful. I love it when actors get those moments. Yes. Yeah. I've, as someone who who enjoyed a lot of Burn Notice, I was happy to see Jeffrey Donovan <laughs> get yeah. to do that. Um, yeah. So I mean, now we're in our fourth season of Fargo, and how many episodes have have you seen of the new season? I've seen the first nine of what will eventually be 11. 
uh, I believe, because they, they, they were almost through production. They were originally here in April, and then they got shut down um, and only just recently were able to go back. And what, how do you, you know, just general without spoiling anything, I mean, how do you feel about this, this fourth season? I think, I mean, my biggest issue with the fourth season is that uh, I, like, I really key into the whole decent person makes terrible decision and bad things happen as a result. Um, I really key into that aspect of it. And I think that's been a big part of a lot of the previous seasons. Like, you know, you've got Ewan McGregor, Ian McGregor, one of Ian McGregor, eh, Ian McGregor's characters accidentally, you know, kills somebody, and then like that sets off a whole chain of events. Like I love, I love that aspect of Fargo. That 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 aspect of Fargo is Fargo to me. Um, and I felt like this fourth season got kind of overwhelmed with basically Noah Hawley just wanting to make the Godfather. Um, and there's a there's a lot of interesting stuff there. A lot of great characters. If you're watching weekly, um, uh, in the, the third episode, you really, the third episode really showcases, uh, two of my favorite characters who are the, uh, women who escape from prison, um, and, uh, have go on, go, go, go on a, go on a bit of a spree, have a little, have a lot of fun. And they're just really wonderfully written characters, wonderfully performed. And they're just like that. They're, they're like, they had like this great chaotic energy to them that I, you know, thought was delightful. And, you know, there's like, the thing with the show is like, you can pinpoint lots of individual moments, like Jessie Buckley, anytime she's on screen, she's incredible. But uh, a lot of it, a lot of it really, like the, the really driving focus of the season is this, uh, you know, essentially a gangster war. And your interest in that is, you know, it, you, depending on your interest in that, that's, you know, what's going to drive your interest in the show this season. I think one of my, I think as you were talking, I kind of figured out my problem with Noah Hawley and what works with the Coen brothers. Because I've seen Legion, uh, or at least the full first season, some of season two of Legion. Uh, I've seen his movie, Lucy in the Sky, and I've seen Fargo. Um, and he likes to do a lot of scenes with people seemingly talking about nothing, but it's actually something that's kind of poetic or um, thematically interesting or, uh, you know, but ties larger into the overall piece that he's doing. And to me, those scenes are about nothing. And I can't I have trouble like engaging because it's not as interesting as it seems to think that it is. Where the Coen brothers do that and it's super compelling you think about you know the ending of no country for old men it's not talking about the plot of the film but it's talking about what the entire film means um and you can't you know you're you can barely breathe while time Lee jones is speaking um but even just you know mundane scenes between two characters and stuff and i don't think that's i don't think it always works in every coen brothers film obviously they have some that don't work but i think that's a hard thing to imitate and i think that's a thing that noah holly did try and imitate in in as uh, you know especially in the first season of fargo but i've kind of felt that prevalent in his other things and i'm just kind of curious i, I guess it's hard for me to pin down who exactly noah holly is as a writer because it it all kind of carries that air of trying to be a little Coen Brothers-esque to me. I mean, I think in general, like, he's someone who, he's someone who puts a lot of faith in his own, his own instincts. And I think the problem is that his instincts are 
pretty pretty wild and like in the things that he find the he like he's a big believer in like oh well I find this I find this storyline interesting enough to build an entire 10 11 season episode uh, 10 11 episode season around um I'll go ahead and you know write that uh and then your interest in that may or may not match up with his but he he's not going to care about what you think is the problem yeah um, and by the way, don't play the drinking game while watching Fargo of somebody makes a speech about America because <laughs> you will not do well. <laughs> yeah, like, because I think you're right. Like, I think there's a lot of times where he just, like, has characters say things, go on long tangents, and they're supposed to be meaningful conversations about stuff. And they're usually, they're usually well-written and performed, and they're interesting. But yeah, like, if you sat down and did a, you know, critical analysis of what, what is actually being said, it may not add up to that much. Yeah, I um, you know, I I mean, after seeing Lucy in the Sky, I was just sort of like, what is this? What is even, <laughs> you know? And I feel like there's a tendency to he's more sizzle than steak. I feel like, you know, the grandosity of his visuals doesn't match the substance of his ideas. Um, especially like for me, like the first season of Legion, it's like, yep, identity is difficult. <laughs> I don't, you know. Well, and, I think this is a perfect example. Like, if you you know. I didn't know until very late into the whole game with Lucy in the Sky that it was based on the astronaut. It was, it was based yeah. on the story of the astronaut who, who, you know, abducted her lover. Um, you ask a hundred Americans, what's the most interesting part of that story? And they will say she wore a diaper. Yeah. Like, they, you know, like 99 out of a hundred Americans will be like, oh yeah, the woman who wore the diaper to do this cross country, you know, journey. And he didn't include that. He was like, that's not interesting to me. And <laughs> I think, I'm not, not that I'm saying I need to see Natalie Portman wear a diaper. I'm just saying, like, um, there's that, that, that is a, a, a great example of how he has a very clear understanding of what he finds interesting. And he has very little, he doesn't really bring in what other people might find interesting. And sometimes that's, that's actually a benefit to him as a auteur. And sometimes it means he doesn't include the goddamn diaper. They made a bigger deal about it in Rough Night with the joke about the sad astronaut than the actual <laughs> movie with the sad astronaut. That's very true. Yeah. His instincts uh, are wild. Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, with that, we should probably move into, uh, unless anyone else has something to add, let's move into Recently Watched. Um, Liz, what have you seen lately? Uh, over the weekend, I. I ended up watching, I don't even know what inspired me to watch American Murder. Or American Murder or American Murder? American, American Murder. Murder. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one, that's a movie. Um, <laughs> that, that I, 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 I'm a professional critic. I can definitely talk about these sorts of things. Uh, the, that one, it was, it was just like, speaking of Fargo, like, what could be more, like, you know, just, I mean, I, do I think that per, do I think the gentleman in question was a good person? Not necessarily, um, not at all. Perhaps, in fact, uh, but just like the mundanity of that murder, like mm. of, of what of what happened, like, and the fact that it's all capped. It was all like so much of what happened was captured through social media, and so much of it was just like documented in this very real and haunting way. That that movie got to me significantly like just you know it's it's i i'm still basically trying to figure out like how 
how it how it should make you feel, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I also watched it recently because Matt, because of Matt's rave review and also was very rattled and just kind of sat there after it ended like, whew, whoa, <laughs> that's some heavy stuff. Like maybe people are bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to sort of, I mean, that's sort of the, the intersection of American murder is like this really unspeakable crime that springs from really mundane pedestrian motives. Yeah. That's sort of the, the and having to make that gulf, mm-hmm. you know, you, you sort of think like, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the crime, you know, the motive must be equal to the crime. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, maybe the motives are are really kind of insignificant and they just spiral out of control. And then it just kind of like, yeah, it's a it's a very grim true crime documentary. And the fact that it's all on video, like you're watching police footage from literally hours after this guy did unspeakable stuff and he's just composed and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's co- busy covering it up. Yeah, it's extremely well put together. I, I I can't wait to read your interview with the director, Matt, because I thought that was a really well-crafted. Oh, well, you don't have to read it. You can watch it. It'll be. Hey. And then listeners can watch it, too, on Collider.com. Ooh. Um, but yeah, I think it, like the, I think it's it's a testament to self-delusion, mm-hmm. I think, is, is yeah. what's fascinating about it in some ways. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That, so that that is... That beyond that is a far more interesting answer, I think, than Top Chef, which is also what I've been watching. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? Uh, well, inspired by listening to the Roger Deakins podcast, they had Jake Gyllenhaal on recently uh, and they spoke about prisoners. And I had only ever seen prisoners once with you, Matt, at TIFF, and we didn't really like it that much. It was a really big movie that year, but we also saw it in like... Like on like the 28th floor of a hotel in like a tiny screening room. It was a strange way to experience that movie. Um, and it's on Hulu now and I'm a huge Deacon fan. And so, and also I've been watching raised by wolves, which the showrunner of that show is the writer of prisoners. So oh. I was curious to revisit it. Uh, Aaron Guzikowski. Um, and you know, it improved a little bit from my first time watching. It's still pretty monotonous and punishing in that, you know, yes, we are all prisoners in our lives. <laughs> and the the punishing uh, uh the you know, the torture is really hard to take at some points. Although I do think I think Hugh Jackman gives a really good performance in that film. And I also think Jake Gyllenhaal gives a really good performance in that film. Um and it's also a film I really like Roger Deakins' cinematography in because, you know, we can talk about Blade Runner 2049 or 1917, but I really love the way he shoots domestic dramas and thrillers. Um, You know, it's just a modern day American city in Pennsylvania, uh, as shot in Georgia. I think it was in Atlanta. Um, But it's really harrowing the way he shoots it and really kind of terrifying. Um, It's still way too long. It's like two hours and 36 minutes. Yeah. It doesn't need to be that long. It's not Villeneuve's best. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, as far as like his American debut goes, I think I think we've seen foreign directors do worse in terms of trying oh, to capture like oh, an American. Absolutely. Yeah, like an American because uh, it, it is an American story and like an American family drama thriller. Um, and, you know, if if you haven't seen it, I still think it's worth checking out. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's interesting. And it, it was interesting on that Deacons podcast to hear. Jake Gyllenhaal said the only reason he did the movie was not the script, what was because Deakins was shooting it. And Deakins said the only reason he did the movie was not the script. It was because Denis Villeneuve was doing it. So it was them kind of like, I mean, not like rapping on the script, but like the script as is was a pretty fairly basic, like abduction mystery thriller. And then Denis decided to focus in on like the characters and the human drama of it all. Um, 
so I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, yeah. I have, I have a question. Um, I, I know I know there is a film out there that I've been told pretty I've, I, that you know hypothetically if one was terrified of giant, giant spiders, um, <laughs> should not watch. Yeah. Is Prisoners that film that I should not watch? It is not. You're thinking, of, you're thinking of Enemy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because I do love, because I, I I feel like I've avoided prisoners for a long time, largely because somebody warned me about, by the way, if you're afraid of giant spiders, which I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying they shouldn't be six feet tall on my TV screen. Like, I don't like it. Um, There's, there are snakes in prisoners, but I will say the the spider aspect of enemy, enemy comes out of nowhere and will make you shit your pants. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's see enemy. Maybe we'll see prisoners because I do love Hugh Jackman and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and I've been meaning. I I, I think I've, I've been avoiding it because I wasn't. I was, couldn't remember which one it was. Yeah, I mean, it's still a pretty punishing, yeah, uh, you know, thriller about like torture and like just the wearing down of the human spirit. <laughs> but it's also got Hugh Jackman and Viola Davis and Jake Gyllenhaal and Wilson Leo. I like the actors. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't be worse in twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, uh, I recently watched, uh, this 2001 horror mystery called session nine, which is currently on Netflix. Uh, a friend of mine worked on it way back when, um, and this film has to go in the hall of fame of location scouting. It, it's set in a real former mental institute. <laughs> and the, the plot of the film is that these, um, hazmat guys are coming to clean out the asbestos in this dilapidated mental institution and creepy things start happening and that and it's a real and like they did i was reading up on the film they did very little set decoration for this film <laughs> most of the creepy shit was already there and it's got a great cast it's got it's got peter mullen david caruso Tom, um uh oh gosh not thomas jane i always get him confused with uh you know the villain from hulk Tom Cruise? No, no. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's good. It's a good cast, um, but it's just it's very good at being unnerving, uh, especially since most of the film takes place in the daytime. But it's just really well done, and um, just uh, I don't want to really give anything away. But what I really appreciate about, appreciate about what uh, director Brett Anderson does is he's able to take this creepy atmosphere and he leans into sort of the dread of it without relying on jump scares. There's very little. And in fact, the film is almost like anti jump scares. Like it kind of like shows you, you know, if someone is about to get the business, like it doesn't try to sort of, instead it works more to just kind of unnerve you. And I think it's just a really great use of setting and this sort of really solid uh, horror mystery film that I don't think a lot of people know about. So uh, session nine is is definitely worth your time if you haven't seen it. What else has that director done? I feel Bra like Brad Anderson. Yeah, Brad. Um, he, yeah, he did. Oh gosh, the Machinist. I, yeah, I think he also did the Machinist, um, and he did like a, a recent horror film with um, Sam Worthington recently. Let's see. Do, 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 do. IMDb be my brain. Um, he did uh, Fractured. That's the one I was thinking of. But uh, he also directed Trans Siberian, which I've heard is good. Um, and so yeah, but uh, definitely check out Session Nine. I th I'd say that's that's worth uh, folks' time. 
Cool. Uh, cool. All right. Well, uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Liz, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Lizla. That's L-I-Z-L-E-T. Uh, and yeah, and I'm also on Collider.com. And Adam, where can people find you? At Adam Chitwood. You can find me at Matt Goldberg. We're currently taking votes for what our next week's topic of discussion should be. We were leaning into spooky season. So uh, your choices for next week's show are Poltergeist, the original, uh, Gerald's Game, uh, Sinister, and Sleepy Hollow. So uh, we've had that poll out. Go vote. And we will talk about what you decide. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. Hey, little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We'll get back to your music shortly, but first, did you know that prescription prices are different at different pharmacies? You could literally drive across the street and get a different price. That's crazy. But with GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices at every pharmacy in your neighborhood and save up to 80%. You're probably thinking there's a catch, right? Nope. It's 100% free and can save you money whether you have insurance or not. In fact, it can often beat your copay. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance.